You're listening to a podcast from Burley Heads Church of Christ, from Burley Heads on the Gold Coast. Um, Adam is one of the pastors over in Southport Church of Christ, our, our big sister or brother up the road, um, and they've been very generous again to lend him to us. So thank you for coming. We're excited to hear what you have to say to us. Um, excited we did have your beautiful wife and daughter here, but I think they're out in kids' church now. Uh, it was awesome. Little Gracie um, was dancing along in the worship set before, and it was, it was a beautiful picture. Um, and also baby number four, uh, baby number two, person number four. <laughs> There's triplets in there. No. Uh, baby number two, person number four, sitting inside Tegan's belly. So it's um, awesome to have you here, mate. We're looking forward to what God has to say. Thanks, Jono. Yeah, you shocked me. You shocked me for a second. And so- and so do I, do I press this to change the slides? Okay, I can do. How tech savvy is this? This is awesome. Hey, well, yeah, like Jono said, my name is Adam and it's just a great privilege I get to come and share and to open God's word uh, with you. I always love coming down here um, and so does Grace and so does Teagues and so... Um, I hope what I have to share is helpful. Um, we're going to go, you guys are walking through uh, John at the moment, and uh, uh, that's exciting. And today we're going to be looking at the story of Jesus uh, walking into the temple uh, and what that looks like. So if you've got your Bibles, you can open them up. Otherwise, I will have this on the screen um, for you to follow along with me. And I'll just give you a second to get there. So good. All right, let us read together. John chapter 2, 13, verse 13 to 25. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Verse 18. So the, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews then then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered, remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Yeah, you're going to have to check out your Bible for the next couple of verses. Verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. And when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on, um, on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Awesome. So we're going to unpack that today. It's a little bit pokey at times. Uh, you can see that Jesus is a little unhappy uh, in this uh, situation. But why don't I just pray and, uh, and then we'll open and unpack that passage. God, I just uh, thank you for this morning and everything that's been already happening. As we come from our lives and uh, there's probably a million things on our minds. 
I just ask that you would help us just to be present with you. Holy Spirit, will you just speak to us in this place through your truth? Give us an ear to hear. And Lord, I just ask, just use my simple words for your glory uh, and for our good. And, um, and Lord, may this service in our lives, um, may we surrender them to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. Awesome. I love the participation in here. Sometimes at Southport, I feel like I'm really trying to grab some attention, but you guys are on. I love it. You're ready to be here. Um, so at first glance, um, we see a pretty confronting image, don't we? Now last week, was it last week you went through the wedding at Canaan? Yeah, week before. Uh, and so if you don't know that story, what happens is Jesus is at a wedding and uh, they're running out of wine and Jesus' mom comes up to him and says, Jesus, you need to do something here. And Jesus does this incredible miracle and he turns water into wine. I think some of us would like that, wouldn't we? Um, it, it's, it's a celebration. Like, it is just an incredible miracle uh, where Jesus is at work. And the next minute, we see, we see John put this uh, story of the temple right where it is, but it's a different facet of the character of Jesus, isn't it? We see him quite mad. And so we've got to ask ourselves, is this the same Jesus? What's going on here? Has he, has he woken up on the wrong side of the bed? What, what, what is, what's, what's going on? And in 1 John, uh, John 1 verse 13, it says that Jesus came full of grace, but he also came full of truth. And I think as we, we look at this encounter in, at the wedding, we see this gracious Jesus at work providing and doing this miracle. And now we're encountering the side of Jesus where his passion and his zeal for the truth. This passion and this zeal he has uh, for his father's house, uh, the temple. And his hatred towards anything and anyone that would get in the way of that worship and corrupt it. And so Jesus makes his way in the temple. And when I think about this, this is just my brain. Um, do you guys remember the undercover boss? That's what I think of when I think of this, right? So like they, what they do is they get like a CEO and then they dress it up as an employer and then he gets a job in the company and then he walks into the company just to suss out what is going on, whether it's healthy or it's not healthy, whether they're doing a good job or whether they're not. I think this is a bit like Jesus, right? You know, God in flesh, rocking up to his temple. Not really, people don't really know who he is uh, and he's there and he's observing and he's watching. Um, and, and so what is the picture that I guess Jesus would long to see for his temple? Um, and as we look at that, we just look back at the Old Testament and it gives us a really beautiful picture of what the temple was originally used for. And so here's a couple of things that it was. The first thing it was is it was uh, a dwelling place for God. It was the dwelling place of God. It was uh, where, the, where the very power and the very presence of God would reside. It would sit. It would, it would rest. It was a sacred and set apart place, the temple. And I love this verse. You, you've got the reference there, but I'll read the verse there from First Chronicles. And this is where the, power, the presence of God comes into the temple. And I just love the posture of the people in this. It says this, when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces on the ground and they worshipped 
and they thanked God. And they said, He is good, His love endures forever. There is this reverence when it comes to the temple in that place, right? There is this sacredness, there's holiness, there's a very presence of God. And so, and this is, this is a part of this is the image that Jesus sees for his temple, this sacred place. The second thing the temple was was it was a place where people were made whole, a place where people could come and find repentance and atonement for their sin a place that they would sacrifice, a place where they were forgiven. Uh, it was a place where people were made whole. And the third thing was the temple was a place for prayer and worship. It was a place where people would bring their thanksgiving offerings, right? And you say, these are all these things that we've been doing already today, haven't they? Isaiah 56.7 says, My house shall be called a house for prayer for all people. And so when Jesus walks into the temple, I guess this, this, this is what's framing his perception of what the temple should look like. This place of worship, prayer, of praise, uh, of knowing, loving, and, and treasuring the Father, a place that is holy, that is sacred, that is set apart uh, for God and for people to worship. And what do you actually see? And I think he sees three things. He sees the temple being desecrated, exploited, and then uh, he sees there's an interruption. And so I'll go through those pretty quick. But verse 14 says this, We read in the temple, He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and there were money changers sitting there. And so there's just, there's just chaos going on, right? Instead of this place being a place where the, the noise that you heard is, is noise or a volume of worship, instead of that, there is this noise of just like a marketplace. They had replaced something that was sacred and they had turned it into something that was common. When Jesus walked into the temple, he saw the same people that were meant to protect this holy place, um, to guard it, and they were actually using it and corrupting it for another agenda. They were desecrating it. And the second thing they were doing is they were exploiting in that place. So what would happen is people would bring, um, people would bring animals um, to sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins during the Passover. And uh, what was happening is the priests would have their own animals there too. And so if you traveled long distances, you didn't have an animal, you could buy one. Um, but what also would happen is before you brought your animal to sacrifice, uh, the priests were like, the, the, the guards, the, the sort of the people that would check the animal to see if it was without blemish and perfect, fit for sacrifice, right? And what they were doing is when people would bring their animals, um, what they were doing is that even if the animals were good, they would actually say they weren't, and then they would sell them their animals at like a crazy price, right? Or uh, if people didn't bring animals, they would just sell them again at just this crazy price. And then we had the money changers, and the money changers would then, uh, if people came with their currency, they would then exchange their currency to a currency that was fit to give, um, but they would do it at a crazy exchange rate, right? So everyone's getting ripped off. Every single person is getting ripped off. It's like going to movie world and you're not allowed to bring your food and you have to buy their food and the food is absolutely a ripoff, but your kids need to eat and so you have to eat the food, right? That's a stupid example, but that's the idea. And then the next thing, the next thing was, it was there was an interruption happening. And so this was a place where people would have come to worship God. And the place that they were coming to worship God, the people that were meant to help them worship, were actually hindering 
their worship. And so what do you think Jesus is going to feel? He's going to be pretty upset, isn't he? And what does Jesus do? Verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. I mean, my first observation, I don't know if you knew this, but Jesus knew how to make a whip. (laughs) Right? I think sometimes we just have this picture of Jesus, like, uh, I don't know, just like some sort of guy stuck in a room reading books or uncool or anything like that. He came along, he knew how to make the whip. Like, that really puts him up there, doesn't it? I think that's pretty amazing. But the thing that stood out to me is he had to make the whip, right? So he didn't come in uncontrolled or unhinged. They reckon it probably took about 45 minutes for him to sit there, make the whip, put it, get it to the right place. And so he's observing, he's watching, this is calculated. It's not unhinged. He, he, he knows what he's doing in this place. And so Jesus overturns the tables, he scatters the money, and can you just imagine the scene? There's animals going everywhere, there's money on the floor, um, they turn something sacred into something common. And then Jesus gives his command. He says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. I wonder how you react to this picture of Jesus. I wonder if you've ever actually pictured or considered Jesus like this. See, I think it's important to remember that we can tell what someone loves by looking at what they hate. We can tell what someone loves by, te- by looking at what they hate. And Jesus was zealous. He was passionate about his father's house for it to be a place of worship. And verse 18 says this, And so the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Cool. So I'm just, I'm just going to draw out three observations I thought were challenging for me, and I hope that are helpful for you. Um, and they might be a little bit pokey along the way, but that's okay. So the first one is Jesus shows his authority. So the undercover boss, he shows, he shows who I am, who he is. Jesus interrupts the space, and the Pharisees, what they do is they go, you know, who are you to interrupt this space? And the thing that Jesus does is he points to himself. Now he says, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. And he's talking about ultimately himself and his resurrection. Jesus didn't walk into that place and and ask for permission to do what he did. He didn't walk into that place and before he did it, he didn't try and explain himself or he didn't try and justify himself. He had the authority in that place to do it. The only person who has the authority to rearrange the furniture is the owner of the house, isn't it? And that's what Jesus does. And so previously at the wedding, we see Jesus have this authority to put something on the table. He brings this miracle. He does, brings his water and he puts it in, and brings it into wine. And what we see here is Jesus has the authority right now to take something off the table. But what we've got to realize is he has the authority to do both. One of the powerful questions you guys are asking at the moment is this, as you go through um, 
Have I got it there? There it is. This is handy. Is Jesus preference or king? Is Jesus preference or king? Is Jesus someone I just like or is he Lord? That is a question you're, you're looking through as you look at the Gospel of John. You see, I think so often we love this Jesus that puts something on the table. We love the Jesus that has the authority to bring the miracle, to answer our prayer, to, bring, uh, pro- to provide for us. We love the Jesus that can heal, right? But how do you and I feel about the Jesus that wants to come in and take something off the table? How do we feel about the Jesus that wants to come in? He wants to bring correction in our lives. He wants to bring discipline. How do we feel about the Jesus that identifies something in our character that he might want to shift or change or correct or restore in our lives? Does he have access in our lives to do that? You see, these guys set up the temple that they had stopped giving God that place. In the temple, they placed greed and self-gain on the table. They placed the worship of self. And their faith was no longer about God the way it should be anymore. And worship, it was about themselves. They desecrated that place. They cluttered their worship. And Jesus turns up. And whether they know him or not, right then, who he is, they question his authority. They question his ability to come in and do that. And that's just a response to the original response that they have to God in this place. Now, here's the reality. So often, I think that you and I can do likewise. It hurts for us to think about it, but it's true. On the table, we compromise our faith and worship with comfort or controlled faith. We focus too much on the attention of ourselves. We create a Jesus of our own choice to follow, a God of our own making, and we surrender parts of our life. Verse 24, which wasn't on the screen, um, it's verse 23 says this, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, or it is there, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. And verse 24 says, But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew the content of their faith in that moment. You see, the same crowd that said they saw the signs and the wonders in that place and believed were the same crowd in John chapter 6 that when Jesus started to address something in their life that they didn't want to hand over to him, they just walked away. They walked away from him. Because Jesus was a, a, a preference. When Jesus was aligned with their preference, it was all good. I'm with you, Jesus. But when Jesus wasn't, they turned around and walked away. Does, it, does Jesus' lordship have access to all of our lives? That's the question. And that was a beautiful question when it came to our giving when you spoke about that this morning, Jono. Does God have access to the inconsistencies of our life? Does he have authority there? Because I think the, the beautiful thing about Jesus is, or a king is you don't give a king authority, do you? He's just got it. Like, he's got it. We don't give him access to it. But what happens is, do we resist that kingship? 
the most loving thing that Jesus can do sometimes is walk into our life and just start poking. I think about this, um, and I, can, I, love, I love having a child now as a pastor because I can just use it in every single sermon. I was like, I can't wait to have a child. I hear those pastors, they're always bringing it up. I can do it now. Um, this is my daughter, Grace. You saw her um, just yesterday. Uh, she was running around, and I'm just like, why is our child so psych- like just so crazy? And, and Tegan's just like, she's, she's like, she's you. That's, that's why. Um, and yeah, I was offended a little bit. But um, Grace, um, Grace inherently, just from a very young age, just right now, she knows, uh, she knows how to do the wrong thing. Um, she knows not to listen to me at times. And um, when I ask her to do things, to not do those things. And, uh, and she knows, right? And in those moments, the most loving thing for Tegan and I to do is to discipline her. Like, it's to correct her. But, but guess what? Like, it is not our favorite thing to do. Like, I don't just sit there and go, yes, I can't, well, yes, she's done something wrong. I can't wait to put her in her crib and then listen to her cry and then, and then get her to say sorry and then keep on going on with life, right? No one likes it. But the most unloving thing for me to do with Grace and, and Tegan to do is just to let her do what she wants to do. The most unloving thing is for her just to, just to go her way if she does it wrong, all good, you just, you just work it out. As long as you're, you're happy, that's fine. No, like, because I know for her future, for her to be the woman that God wants her to be and for her to be an actually positive thing in our society, um, that she needs correction. Um, she needs to be shaped. And the same is for us. The most unloving thing, Jesus, uh, most unloving thing Jesus, for Jesus to do is to not touch those parts of our life that need correction. Hebrews says this, God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in His holiness. I love that. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, right? We all know that. But it's painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. I love that. What does it look like for us to embrace that? Is Jesus a preference or is he king of all of our lives? Does he have access to all that we are? Number two, my second observation is there is a new temple. Verse 19 says this, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And so what Jesus is doing, like I said before, is he's talking about himself. The word used here for temple is the Greek word, uh, and if you are a Greek scholar, you can come and talk to me um, about the pronunciation of this, but I believe it's naos, um, which means the place um, and the presence of the power of God would rest, the holies of holies, right? This, this, this presence of God. And Jesus is saying it's now in Him. The fullness of God's presence is no longer in the building, but in Jesus. But then it even gets all, even more awesome have a look at this. That same Greek word is Paul uses in, in his writings in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 3.16, which you'll see, when he says, Do you not know that, that you are God's temple? Referring to believers. That God's Spirit dwells in you. That now, the place that God's power and presence rests is in you and I. Isn't that isn't that incredible? I think if we comprehended that just with, in all of our life, 
we would just be doing some incredible things for God, wouldn't we? Imagine the confidence we would have if we just grasped the fact that the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead rests in you. What, what does it mean for us to grab that? Anyway, a detour. The temple and the dwelling place of God is no longer in a building behind a sacred curtain, but the Holy Spirit rests in the children of God. It rests in you and I, the church. The real temple, the real place wants to li- God wants to live uh, and worship is in His followers. Now, what should this new temple look like? Well, it's what Jesus explained, or what the, that we looked at what Jesus was expecting to see. Our lives should be a place of submission and worship, communion with God, righteousness and, rep- and peace, repentance and forgiveness, a place of wholeness, of thanksgiving, of joy. This is just the Holy Spirit at work in us, right? A people that are holy and set apart for a purpose. A people, when people run into us, they walk away feeling like they've met something good and and pure. I wonder if your life feels like that. This beautiful picture we see Jesus have for the temple, He wants for us to take place in our lives. And if Jesus was so zealous about a physical building there... How much more zealous would he be about your life? How much more concerned is he about what goes, in your, goes into your heart and your mind? How much more concerned is he about the, our state of our worship and whether it is cluttered or not, or whether we have kept it sacred or made it common? Friends, my question is, what, what is the condition of your soul this morning? You can just take a breath and just go... As you sit here now and as you worship God, as you turn up to church, as you sing the songs, what's, what's the condition of your soul? What's the direction of your worship? Here's, here's what breaks my heart and here's the thing that I wrestle with. Is these guys in the temple, they didn't start there. I don't think they started in a place where they were compromising. I think they started out actually wholeheartedly wanting to make that place a place that was holy and sacred and set apart, a place where people could praise and worship. But how, how did they end there? How did they get there? What, what had to happen? Because I don't think it happened overnight. I don't think just one night they just said, hey, stuff it, let's just, let's just do this. I think it was slowly over a period of time there was a compromise that began to happen. When I look at the church, when I look at the world, when I even look at my own lives, I think one big obstacle that I think can happen and take place is we begin to adopt this thing called apathy. And I don't, I'm sorry if it feels like I'm poking. I felt like I was poking when I was writing this, um, but I hope that it is helpful. When I say apathy, I mean sometimes there is an indifference and complacency we, we see towards God's sin and His mission. We compromise truth for culture. We compromise conviction for convenience. And, and we're just indifferent to sin. Uh, uh, it, it kills our devotion life. It kills our prayer life. You're doing prayer at the moment? Yeah. On average, the average Christian has three minutes of prayer life a week, including grace and time at church and doesn't that surprise you that surprises me right and apathy and indifference to this stuff can quickly rob us of communion and relationship with God and we've got to be careful about it 
My concern is instead of actually dealing with the thing that's corrupting us, we just try and manage it. Let me explain it, this with a stupid story. This is my, um, this is my, this is our dog, my parents' dog. Um, its name is Minnie. Um, that was when she was a puppy. It's like six months later, she's like all grey. I don't know what happened. Um, but um, they've got this, they've, they've just got this dog and um, uh, it, it just, it's not very trained. Um, no offence. It just wasn't, it just, it wasn't learning quickly. Um, and, and so to create the least collateral damage, um, they put it in the laundry, right? And so if we just put it in the laundry and we close the door, we know there's some towels, there's some clothes, but it's okay. Like we'll be able to clean that stuff up. The rest of the house is okay, right? And so one day I put the dog in the laundry, I go out and I think I'm, I'm house sitting and, um, and I come home and she's gotten out of the laundry and there's just poo everywhere. It's pulling my pillow, and it's on, it's on the floor. And I honestly, I, I thought this was funny. I just gonna, it's like this, right? It's like she's called all her friends over from the neighborhood, and, uh, and it's just lovely dog, like lovely company, but just caused so much mess, right? And while, like, this is a silly way to put it, um, I, I honestly think we just do that. I honestly think we do that. I think instead of killing sin, what we do is we just, we'll just manage it. We'll just put it in, in the cupboard or a part of our lives where we can control it. But who knows that soon enough, it doesn't stay there. Soon enough, it comes into our life and into our world and it begins to compromise and corrupt our lives, to rob us of life, and it begins to rob us of our relationship and our communion with God. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says that managing sin is like setting a small fire and attempting to control it with the sound of your voice. John Owen quotes that we need to be killing sin or it will be killing you. You see, Jesus came to give us life and life abundantly. And as time goes on, really quickly, we can allow our lives and our worship to be cluttered and corrupted to a point where we're no longer living in that victorious life that Jesus promised us. What's, what's the condition of your soul this morning? How much access does the authority of Jesus have in your life? And let me finish with the last one. Is Jesus the ultimate temple, which we just mentioned before? When he says, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up, he's indicating a new way. He's indicating that he is the ultimate temple. One of the, question, the other questions you guys are asking at the moment, it's not on the screen, but is Jesus someone you resonate with or is he the truth and the way? See, right during Passover, uh, they, they are remembering um, the night when the angel of death passed over the Israelites. And any home that had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost was saved. And so Jesus is coming in, not just to show this physical healing, but to show that he will be the ultimate sacrifice for the ultimate spiritual healing and wholeness for all people that believe in him. Worship is not about a place, but a person. The temple was a sacrifice where sacrifices were offered. Jesus would now be the ultimate sacrifice. 
We meet God through Jesus. We pray to God through Jesus. We get close to God through Jesus. And we have hope over the grave because of Jesus. And just to finish, like my, my hope is by, by speaking through this passage is not for us to walk out going, I need to pull my socks up. I need to try harder. I need to do better. Um, I was sitting with a young adult this week and he was really keen to get baptized. And as I was talking to him to get about baptism, he was just saying, I really can't wait to get baptized to get right with Jesus. And I just said, wow, I think I've got something really exciting to share with you. Um, do you mind if I explain the gospel to you? Has anyone ever done that? And uh, I, I began to talk to him about what Jesus did on the cross, that we will never actually be able to be enough. And as I showed him this picture, there is this picture of, um, uh, it's like uh, in a gospel presentation, it's like us, the cross, and then relationship with Jesus. And I said, like, where are you? And he says, I'm here. And I said, well, what's stopping you being here? And he said, I need to trust the finished work of Christ. I need to stop trying to be right, and I need to start trusting. And I said, well, do you want to do that? And he said, I do. I want to do that today. And over a coffee, we were able just, he was there able to give his life to Christ. But there is a real distinction there from trying and trusting. And I just want to encourage you this morning in your pursuit to follow Jesus. What does it look like? Not for you just to try harder, but for you to get out of the way and give God the access he deserves and the authority in your life that uh, is needed as you follow him. What I'm going to do is there's three questions on the screen. And uh, the band's going to come up and they're going to lead us in the last song. But before we do that, they might actually um, just cherry pick what question you want to use there. Um, but I'd just love you to talk to your neighbor about some of those questions. Or if you don't have a neighbor and you want to just uh, sit and ponder them yourself, I just want to encourage you, well, what, is it, what does it look like for us to give authority in all areas of your life? And, and do you? And if not, you know, why not? What's the wrestle there? Uh, is there sin in your life that you are trying to manage? And three, where do you place your hope for salvation in Jesus or in somewhere else? And so I'll just pray and then we'll do that now. Lord God, I just thank you for your text. I thank you for your love for us. God, that this, uh, Lord, this facet of you, Jesus, that just cares for our holiness um, and Lord longs for us to be whole. Uh, I just ask God that you would help us just to trust you with the areas of life that we are holding too tightly. Help us to trust you with the areas of life that you want to clean up and just bring healing and wholeness to us. And God, may we put you the throne on the throne of our life, Lord, as we, are, as we step out of this place and into our world. God, meet us in this place and just bless our conversation as we just chat as a family and a community. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just turn to your neighbor and just have a chat.